Hi, this is Cindy Cohen, the Executive Director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. With the latest indictments out of Georgia and the 2024 elections coming up on us soon, the security and trustworthiness of elections are once again top of mind for many people. And that reminded us of a great conversation that my former co-host Danny O'Brien and I had in Season 3 with Pam Smith, the CEO of Verified Voting. Pam gave us a pathway to respond when we hear about election problems and also gave us a lot of hope about how we can all be sure that the person who gets the most votes is indeed declared the winner of our elections. So we thought we'd share that episode with you again. I hope you enjoy it. It's not like banking and shopping, and it's not like banking and shopping online and other things that don't require secrecy and disassociating the identity of the person doing the transaction from the content of the transaction. And that's why internet voting is so challenging. If you were to send in your ballot from remotely and then call the election official and say, hey, it's Pam, I sent my ballot, I voted for candidate A, is that what you've got? You know, that's not how elections work, first of all. But if it were, why not just do that and not do the send? Just say, hey, I want to vote for candidate A. Could you mark that down for me? That would actually be safer. It wouldn't be private, but neither is internet voting. That's our guest, Pam Smith. She's the CEO of Verified Voting. And today she's going to be joining us to explain how digital technologies can help secure elections. But we're also going to talk about how we need to keep a clear separation between our actual votes and the internet. Pam's going to spread some light and tell us how we can protect the entire process from voter registration to vote verification through to a risk-limiting audit. She'll tell us how to build a system that lets everyone feel comfortable that the candidate with the most votes was actually the one chosen. I'm Cindy Cohen, the Executive Director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I'm Danny O'Brien, Special Advisor to the EFF. Welcome to How to Fix the Internet, the podcast where we explain some of the biggest problems in tech policy and examine the solutions that will make our lives better. Hi, Pam. You and I go way back, and I currently serve on the Board of Advisors of Verified Voting. I'm so excited to have you here today so we can dig into these things. It's great to be with you again. So we find ourselves in a very strange situation, you and me and and others who care about election integrity, where some of the arguments that we have been using for many, many years to try to make our elections more secure are being picked up and used by people who I would say don't have that same goal. Well, you know, I think people legitimately want to know that elections are righteous. I mean, why wouldn't they? But I think the undermining of the public's ability to trust and to know how to trust in elections is really one of the more severe dangers to democracy today. You know, as long as there have been elections, there have been problems, issues, challenges, and even tampering with elections. That's not new. Those issues are different at different points in history. Starts out with who gets the vote and who doesn't. Right. But also, you know, back in the day, communities used hand count votes um, with the whole public watching. And it was very transparent. It was low tech, no problems. But it was also not private, not secret. And there were very few voters. Now elections are carried out with software and computerized systems in most aspects of elections and things can be hacked and tampered with and can have failures and bugs and glitches. People need to understand technology touches their elections in many places. How do we know that it's secure? So what we do 
is look at what are the basics in securing elections. It's the same as securing anything computerized. It's keeping systems up and running. It's protecting data from both malfeasance and malfunction. (laughs) And it's being able to recover when something goes wrong, having that resilience. Could you give us an example of one of the things that people were very worried about that election officials could easily explain? Well, I, probably the biggest one, and and this was sort of anticipated, was the fact that not all the votes are going to be done being counted on election night. Yeah. They're just not. And especially in 2020, where you add one more layer of complexity called a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it made a lot of things different. When the ballots come in, if they came in before election day, my county prepares them for counting and runs a tally first thing after the polls are closed, they can report out those absentee ballots. But those are just the ones they've already gotten in. That's not the polling place ballots. That's not the ones we allow to arrive late as long as they were postmarked on time. And so there's many more ballots to be added into that count. That's just the initial count. And I think people don't know that the initial count is not the official count. And that's important to know. It takes a while for all of the ballots to be processed and counted even to make sure that they were legitimate ballots and included properly in the count. And that end part is called certification of the election. And when we certify in each jurisdiction, that's the final count. And this is the difference, I think, between elections in the United States and elections in a lot of places around the world. We vote on a lot of things. It's true. And we have complicated ballots that might change across the street, you know, depending on what precinct or whatever that you're in, even in a place where people live very close together, there are different kinds of ballots because people are voting for their very local representative as well as all the way up to the federal level. And elections are generally governed as a legal matter uh, locally as well. Um, so, you know, the the federal, the U.S. Constitution um, guarantees your right to vote, but how that happens varies a lot. So one of the things that verified voting created a long time ago, but which I still think is a tremendously useful tool is something called the verifier which is a website that you can go to and type in, you know, where you live and it will tell you exactly what counting technologies are used. And I think this touches on the key point here, right, that how technology can complicate or even sort of undermine people's trust in what is already a very complicated system. Again, a lot of the conversations in the last election were about has this been hacked and how do we prove whether it has or it hasn't been hacked? I know Verify Voting and EFF were very involved in the early effort to require paper records, a paper trail of digital voting technology, what we call voter verified paper records back in the 2000s. So can you just sort of talk a little bit about where the role paper of all things plays in a more high tech voting system? It's interesting to note, when we got started back in 2004, there were only about eight states with a requirement to use paper. And only about three had a requirement to check the paper later with an audit. And when you say paper here, it's like literally a printout, right? You vote and then there's a paper record somewhere that you voted in a certain way. It's a physical record that you get to check to make sure it was marked the way you intended it. it. And you may be using an interface a machine that prints that out, but you may be marking a physical ballot by hand as well. It's that physical record of your intent that is the evidence for the election. So here's the thing about paper. You need to know that you can cast an effective ballot. 
And that means you're getting the right ballot, that it's complete. There's no missing candidates or contests on it. It's feasible to mark if you have to use an interface, that that interface is working up and running, and that you have a way to check that physical ballot and cast it safely and privately. Then that ballot gets counted along with all the other ballots, and you need a way to know it was counted correctly, and that you can demonstrate that fact to the public, you know, to the satisfaction of those who are on the side of the losing candidate or issue. And that's the key. If you have that, this is what was said about the 2020 elections. Chris Krebs, who was at DHS, the cybersecurity agency at DHS, on elections, and he called the 2020 election the most secure in recent in American history. And the leg he had to stand on for that was the fact that almost all jurisdictions were using paper, that almost all jurisdictions were doing some kind of audit to check after the fact. And that's why it matters. You have to have that record. I know that some of the work that's sort of come out of what you've been doing then has been this idea of risk-limiting audits. I'm addressing this to both of you because I know, I know you both worked on this, but the r- risk-limiting audits and how they work. So audits get done in a variety of industries. That there are audits in banking. You know, there's all kinds of audits. The IRS might audit you. It's, it's not always seen as such an attractive word, but in, elect- in, in elections, it's really important. Um, what it means is you're, you're counting, you're doing a hand-to-eye count, you're visually looking at those paper ballots and doing a comparison of a count of a portion of those ballots with the machine count. So software can go wrong. It can be badly programmed. It could have been tampered with. But if you have that physical record that you can then count a portion of and check and make sure it's, it's matching up, and if it's not, figure out where the problem is. That's what makes the system resilient. A risk-limiting audit is one that relies on uh, the margin of victory to determine how much you have to count in order to have a strong sense of confidence that you're not seating the wrong person in office. So it's a little bit like polling. You know, if you poll on a particular topic, you want to know how the public feels about something. You don't have to ask every single person. You just ask a percentage of them. You make sure it's a good cross-section. You make sure it's a well-randomized sample and all other things being equal. You're going to know how people feel about that topic without having to ask every single person. And with with risk-limiting audits, it's the same kind of science. It's using a statistical method to determine how much to count. We worked really hard to try to make sure that there was paper. And then we realized that we had to work really hard to make sure that the paper played the role that it needed to play when there are concerns. Now, if you only do this when you're worried that there's a problem, you're really not fixing the situation. It needs to be something that happens every time so people can build their trust in the things. But also it needed to be lightweight enough that you could do it every single time and you don't end up with these kind of crazy debacles like we saw in Arizona. Can you give us an update? How's it going trying to get risk-limiting audits kind of regularized in, in the law? I know this is an area where you guys do a lot of work. Well, this extremely geeky term, risk-limiting audits, is actually getting wide traction. And so it's good news. People, I think, are understanding it. And one of the things that we do is support election officials through the process. So maybe their state passes a law that says you'll do risk-limiting audits. And we help them understand how to do it and answer all the questions that might come up when they're doing it. 
And they then use that to demonstrate to the public that it's working right. And it's a tool that they are really adapting to and adopting well. There's more to do. And I think what's important to know is that, you know, really any audit is going to have some utility in telling you how your equipment's working. Risk-limiting audits are a more robust form of auditing, and they will let you not do as much work if the margin is wide, and they will call for more work if the margin is very narrow, but you want that anyway. You might go to a full recount in a very tight margin, you know, talking about Florida 2000, that kind of margin, you know, would probably necessitate that full hand recount anyway. But doing a risk-limiting audit, you can get to that kind of confidence. How to Fix the Internet is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding of Science, enriching people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly technological world and portraying the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. Let me flip to where I I love to go, which is what does it look like if we get this right? What are the values? What does it look like if we have a world in which we have technology in the right places in our systems, but also that we can trust it? I think that getting it right means that voters know the election was fair because it was conducted securely and they know how to know that. They know where the ground truth is and how to figure it out, that they're participating actively and watching, that they're not being hindered by failed technology at whatever point that intersects with the election, whether it's a registration or checking into the polling place or actually using a device to mark your ballot or the counting process, that nowhere along the path they're being hindered in that process. And, you know, that means more people can participate who want to participate. This doesn't address things like voter suppression, right? That's a separate, uh, different issue. And it's an issue about security because elections really are only secure if everybody who wants to gets to participate Mm. and can cast an effective ballot. Could you explain why, you know, we want to fix the internet, we want to make the world better and why voting over the internet isn't on the list of things that we think would make a better world? One of the things that we talked about is the importance of the paper that the voter gets to check at the time they're voting and make sure it represents what they meant to vote for. When you use the internet to transmit votes, you lose that. Mm. What arrives at the elections office, if it arrives at the elections office, may or may not represent what the voter thought they intended to vote for. And there's no real way to control for that right now. Maybe in some future on a different internet that was designed for security and not just for open communication, (laughs) uh, it's possible to do. But you have all kinds of issues with internet voting that include things like voter authentication attacks, malware on the voters' devices, not just in the elections office, a denial of service attack, server penetration, spoofing, all kinds of things can go wrong. And ballot privacy is tremendously important, right? If you really want to make sure that people can vote freely for who they want, you don't want them subjected to either their boss or the the other people who live with them or their community being able to see how they vote. That's, That's not a free vote. That can often be a coerced vote. So a secret ballot is just a piece of how elections work, uh, not just in the U.S., but in most places of the world for, you know, really good reason. The Internet has other ways in which it's hazardous to elections health, right? It (laughs) it can be used for 
attacks on election officials, which we're seeing a lot these days. Attacks on votes, attacks on voters registration. We saw in 2016 state databases um, being tampered with from afar and other kinds of information hacks. And just really by way of disinformation, attacks on democracy and understanding how to know what you need to know. You know, if we're thinking about what would the world look like if we got it right, election officials are protected. Mm -hmm. Votes are secure and voter registration is secure. And there's ways for people to check and make sure of that and fail safes in case something happens last minute. So all of those kinds of things are really important. Fighting disinformation is probably as important as the rest. I thought it was very fascinating in the last couple of elections in the U.S. I was sort of talking to the cybersecurity side of, of all of this. It's very difficult to get to the bottom of these things. But one thing really stuck with me, which is that the officials I was talking to said, well, look, most people's model of this is someone is hacking in to like change the results to favor a particular person. But in fact, if you want to introduce instability into a country, the best thing you can do is just undermine faith in the system itself. You don't actually have to achieve a result. You just have to inject a sufficient amount of ambiguity into the result because once that trust is gone, then it doesn't matter what the result is because the other side is is going to assume something happened behind the scenes. Is part of this to make the whole system transparent in a way that the average person can understand what's going on? We don't expect voters to have confidence. Our, our mission has never been, you know, make voters feel confident. It's not about that. It's about giving them justified confidence that the outcome was right. And that's different. But let's just say I, I hear that there's a problem in a critical place. What do I ask myself and what do I look for to be able to tell whether this is, you know, a real problem or, or perhaps not a real problem that's being overblown or just misunderstood? You want to know what the election official says. There are rare exceptions, but nearly all the election officials I know, they're simply heroes, frankly. They're working with minimal budgets and doing, you know, very long hours on very tight deadlines that are unforgiving. But what they do is really to address problems, anticipate problems, avoid them, and if they come up, address them. And so you need to know what the election official is saying. If it's observable, go observe. If there's a, you know, a count happening that you can watch, go count, go watch that count. You can't get your information from somebody's cousin on Facebook. Give us an example of where there was a concern and we were able to put it to rest or there was a concern and it went forward. One of the things we'd hear on election day at election protection was we'd get a call from somewhere and they'd say, I've marked my ballot and I wanted to go cast it in the scanner like I usually do, but they told me not to and they put it in a separate bin. Mm. Why did they do that? Are they, you know, taking those ballots away? Are those not going to be counted? What's happening there? And we're able to tell them that there is actually a legit reason for that, you know, that what happens sometimes in a ballot scanner is that the bin gets full, that the ballots don't fall in a straight line and it may be jammed. And if it's jammed, you don't want the ballots to kind of get destroyed by trying to keep feeding more and more in. That bin has actually got a name. It's the auxiliary bin. It's the extra bin for when this <laughs> happens and it's attached to the ballot box. And what happens is once they clear that jam, which they may not be able to do in the middle of the busiest time of voting, is to feed those through. Right. That actually is a real simple problem with a simple resolution. But when you can tell people this is how that works, it puts their mind at rest. 
Which brings me to something else that people often, both on the left and right, worry about, which is the companies behind these machines. How can we reassure people that, that there isn't something being underhand in the very design of the technologies? You know, we used to say that it, it shouldn't matter if the devil himself designed your voting system. <laughs> as long as there's paper and you're doing a robust check on the paper, you should be able to solve for that. That's what makes it resilient. And that's why we want to make sure every voter, not just 90% or more, but all of the voters are living in a jurisdiction where that paper record is there for them to check. I just think overall, you know, these are, this is technology. It needs to be subjected to the same things we do in other technology to try to continue to make it better. And that includes, you know, a funding stream so that when new technology is available, local election officials can actually get it. Elections are woefully underfunded. There's a conference that happens in California every year that's called New Laws. And this is a conference that election officials hold so that they can examine all the new laws that have been passed that affect how they run elections. It happens every year. <laughs> yeah. And so they are constantly and continuously having to update what they do and make changes to what they do. And oftentimes there are unfunded mandates that have to do with what they do. Asking them to do additional things is hard, especially if you're not going to pay for it. So it's really important that there is federal funding for elections that gets down through to the states and to the counties to support good technology. But with things like Internet voting, the most dangerous form of voting, that doesn't have to go through any certification. Yeah. Because no one's been able quite yet to write standards for how you would do this securely, <laughs> right? Because yeah. you can't <laughs> right now with our current Internet. Not that we don't want to, you just can't. have one more thing to throw in, which people are often, <laughs> often sort of say, oh, we should do it like this. And I'd love to know your opinion on it because our community is often like, well, we need an open source voting machine or a voting system, right? And that would fix a set of problems. Certainly, you know, the idea is that that would be more transparent and you would feel more confident about it. Do you think that's an answer or part of the answer? I think it's a very good thing. It's what some people might call necessary, but not sufficient. You still are going to need to do audits. You're still going to need paper. You still need a resilient system. But open source helps make sure that you can anticipate some of the issues right away because there are lots of eyes on, on the problem. With voting technology, though, this gets kind of tricky. It's not quite the same as other kinds of open source because who's responsible for, you know, what's the most current iteration? right? Mm. This isn't something that people can just keep applying fixes to randomly. There has to be a known version that's being used in a particular election. And so there has to be kind of a, an organization or entity that governs how that's being used. Understanding how this technology works is tremendously important for all of our security. And it's classic security through obscurity doesn't work that our friend Adam Savage just reminded us of. This is a whole other wing of secure elections, but the only way you know something is secure is that a bunch of smart people have tried to break it and they can't. Don't leave weak spots if you can help it, because, you know, if somebody's <laughs> looking to tamper, they're going to find the weakest point. It really is crucial to try and secure all parts of our elections. 
So what's the end game here? You're clearly deeply in, in the trenches trying to incrementally improve these systems. But do you ever have a dream where you, you envisage a world where maybe, you know, maybe we, we do have a solution to voting on the internet uh, or we do use a sort of new technology to make things better? Moving towards those options includes things like if you need to vote by mail, you can vote by mail. If you uh, want to vote in person in a polling place, that's available to you. If you need an accessible device, one that's really, really accessible and usable is available to you. And it works and it was set up uh, before you got there. So it's 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 readily available. I think um, knowing that every jurisdiction is using a system that's resilient to any kind of failure, hurricane power outage, you know, anything, um, that there's a physical ballot to mark, that there's, uh, it's easy to check. It's a usable ballot, not confusing. So you end up missing contests or anything like that. It's designed well. Ballot design is really important. All of those small pieces are only possible if there's enough funding for elections. If we believe in our democracy and we believe in having good elections, then that means having good voting systems, good practices, and the resources to carry those out. Right now, election officials really struggle to recruit enough poll workers for every election. Of course, that got a little harder with a pandemic going on. Um, And many poll workers are of an older age cohort, so we need younger poll workers. And a lot of really smart programs have led to recruiting high school students uh, to be poll workers, and it's been magical. Um, so I think really getting everyone engaged, getting everyone to understand where they can find the ground truth about elections and feeling the confidence that they need to really happily participate um, and celebrate being part of this democracy, that's the most important thing. And that's what I envision for our future. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This has been a fascinating conversation. There's so much talk about elections and election integrity right now. And it's great to have kind of a, a sane, stable voice that's been, you know, here for a long time, which is you and Verified Voting uh, on the case. So thanks. Thank you, Cindy. And thank you, Danny. Thanks for doing this. It's always good to talk to somebody like Pam, who has years of experience, especially when a topic is suddenly as controversial or in the public eye as election integrity. And I did think, given how controversial it is these days, Pam was reassuringly genial. She established that we need to get to a ground truth that everyone can agree on. And we need to find ways, technological or not, to reassure voters that whatever the result, the rules were followed. I especially appreciated the conversation about risk-limiting audits as one of the tools that help us feel assured that the right person won the election, the right issue won the election, Um, and especially that these need to be regularized, right? You know, EFF is audited, lots of organizations are audited. This is just someone built into the way we do elections so that the trust comes from the idea that, you know, we're not doing anything special here. We always do audits and we scale them up depending on how close the election is. And that's just one of the pieces of building trust that I think verified voting has really uh, spearheaded. The other thing I really liked was the ways that she helped us think about what we need to do when we hear those rumors of terrible things happening in elections far away. And I appreciated that, you know, you start with the 
the people who are there, right? Look through the election officials and the organizations who are actually on the ground in the place where you hear the rumors about uh, looking to them first, but also looking to the election protection orgs of which, you know, verified voting is one, but, but not nearly the only one that are really working year round and working in a nonpartisan way around election integrity. Yeah. And another leg of the stool is transparency throughout all of this process. It's key for resolving the ambiguity of it. And I do appreciate that she pointed out that while open source code is great for giving some element of transparency, it's necessary but not sufficient. You have to wrap it around a, a trusted system. You can't just solve this by waving the, the free software license wand all over it. I also appreciate Pam kind of lifting up the two sides of thinking about the Internet's involvement in our elections. You know, first of all, the things that it's good at, delivering information, making sure ballots get to people, um, but also what it's not good for, which is actual voting and the fact that we, we can't get ground truth uh, in internet voting right now. Part of the reason we can't and what makes this different than doing your banking online or other things online is the need for ballot secrecy that has, you know, a a tremendously long and important uh, role in our elections. But that said, I do think that ultimately there was a positive thread going through all of this, that many, many things in this area in the United States have got better. We have better machines, we have newer machines, we have less secrecy and proprietary barriers around those machines. And you know, often people, when we ask them about what their vision of the future is, they get a little bit thrown because it is hard to it is hard to describe the positive side. But Pam, Pam was pretty, pretty specific, but also pointed out like perhaps why it's such a challenge because she highlighted that what we want in our future is 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 a diversity of solutions and of course that you need the 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 correct financial and social support in the rest of society to make that vision happen Thanks so much to Pam Smith for joining us and giving us so much honestly hope for the future of our democracy and our voting systems If you like what you heard, follow us on your favorite podcast player and check out our back catalog for more conversations on how to fix the internet. Music for the show was created for us by Reed Mathis and Nat Keith of Beatmower. This podcast is licensed Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International and includes music licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 unported licensed by their creators. You can find those creators' names and links to the music in our episode notes or on our website at eff.org slash podcast. How to Fix the Internet is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's program in public understanding of science and technology. I'm Danny O'Brien. And I'm Cindy Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us. This podcast is licensed Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International and includes the following music licensed Creative Commons Attribution 3.0, unported by its creators. Klaus by Skill Borrower, Common Ground by Airtone, and Chrome Cactus by Martine DeBoer.